0: I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited about this episode of Beauty Bosses. Today, we have the amazing Lucy Lang. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Okay. Thanks for being here. So Lucy Lang is a career prosecutor who was recently appointed the executive director for the Institute for Innovation in Prosecution at John Jay College. Um, So thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm really pleased to be here. And it's, uh, it's particularly interesting for me. It's my first time ever on a podcast. And Podcasting is the best. Podcasts are the new blogs. I'm a podcast junkie. I listen to <laughs> your podcast and many other podcasts. And in fact, working in criminal justice, the criminal justice podcast world has just taken off. So it's it's a great forum for me to um, learn about my own industry yeah. as well.
0: You guys heard it here first, so that's a hot new trending topic. That's right. Um, So you have a really interesting career because you've spent your life and your professional um, career to this point focusing on prosecution. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what that means?
1: Well, I grew up in New York and I grew up in a family of artists. And it was very clear to me from a young age how important living in a, uh, a safe city was to people being able to do things that elevate the human spirit. And, uh, I had a long history of public service in my family and I knew that I would go into public service. And to me, it was always connected to this idea of the, um, there being access to the arts and sort of freedom to, uh, to, to live your, your best life. And so for me, justice is a prerequisite to that. And I think that that is a kind of core value that led me to my work.
0: So let's let's rewind a little bit and um, go back to college. Did you have an idea at that time when you were kind of in your formative educational years that you wanted
1: to go into this field? I knew that I wanted to be in policy making, and I had a pretty strong sense that I should be a lawyer in order to do it because uh, I felt like that would give me an advantage over other kind of policy wonks. Um, I went straight to law school from college. And you went to college at, tell us about your college. I went to Swarthmore College, which is a small liberal arts, formerly Quaker college outside Philadelphia, and is one of the outstanding uh, places to be this time of year in the fall. In fact, I just love Swarthmore. I went directly from there to Columbia, largely because I knew that the uh, option after college in order to go into law school would be being a paralegal, and I didn't really want to work for someone. I wanted to be in a position where I was able to work for myself, or, um, sort of start at a higher level. So I went to law school, and actually, this is one of the great lessons um, of, of my career, was that my graduation speaker from college was Judge Jed Rakoff, who is a federal judge here in the Southern District of New York, and he gave a beautiful graduation talk in which he talked about a decision in which he had ruled the death penalty unconstitutional. It was subsequently overruled by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, but I was so moved by this graduation talk that, consistent with my mother's uh, lifelong lesson, I wrote him a handwritten thank you note, thanking him for it and telling him I was going to law school the next year. And he actually wrote me a note back in the mail and said, I'm hiring first-year law students. If you care to apply, please submit your resume. So I did, and he became a great mentor for me going forward and ultimately was a, a, a great support when I decided to pursue a position at the Manhattan DA's office, which was my first job out of law school. And I stayed at the DA's office for more than 12 years and uh, recently moved to this position at John Jay, where I'm doing much of the same work I was doing in Manhattan around prosecution and community justice, but now I'm trying to do it on a more national scale.
0: I love this origin story because so many people are are kind of a little bit inhibited and almost afraid to talk to the people that they look up to. And um, and I love that you sent a personalized thank you note and that snail mail was kind of the, <laughs> the ticket to this uh, career. Um, that's so great. Um, when you were at the Manhattan DA's office, can you tell us about the types of... Um, cases that you were taking and the kind of work that you were doing there?
1: I started in the appeals bureau, and after handling two years of of post-conviction proceedings, I moved to an all-purpose trial bureau. And the Manhattan DA's office is an outstanding place to receive training as a lawyer. Uh, The way that it's structured is that you start handling lower-level offenses and sort of work your way up. So by the end of my time in Manhattan, I was handling... Uh, violent street crime including homicides. I had handled some long-term wiretap investigations uh, and some very significant gang takedowns and I moved into a position in which I was advising the uh, top levels of the DA's office on policy matters and that was a really uh, exciting change in my career and kind of getting back to what I had imagined when I was in school that I would do where I was thinking about much bigger picture things. As a line prosecutor You really react to cases the police bring to you. You react to tragic situations. And it is an incredibly rewarding job to have, but it is also very challenging because, for example, every day in New York City, there is one prosecutor who is on what we call homicide call. And you'll remember from your days on call that it means that if there's a homicide, you have to respond to the scene immediately and you're responsible for... Uh, assisting the the detectives in managing that situation and it can be an incredibly traumatic experience. It is an incredibly traumatic experience of course for um, all of the citizens who are involved and it is very important that the law enforcement who respond handle it in appropriately uh, thoughtful, professional, compassionate, trauma-informed ways. So I was fortunate to be able to do that work. Um, when I was in the DA's office.
0: Yeah. What was it like when you were on homicide call?
1: You sort of would jump every time the phone rang. And I was fortunate because by the time I was handling homicides, they were at really near-to-record lows in New York. We've had, to date in in Manhattan, 26 homicides. That is completely unheard of in New York City history and totally... yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. You no, know, totally unheard of in the rest of the country.
0: Yeah, I was going to just say, how does that number 26 compare to some other benchmarks, either in the past for New York or in other regions? It's, it's
1: really a total standout.
0: Yeah. Um, when, when, you, uh, when you go to the scene of a crime, like a homicide, what do you do as the DA? Because I'm picturing like law and order and I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember those episodes and like figure out um, who was who and what they were doing. I know you have a notebook probably.
1: Oh, we definitely have a notebook. <laughs> um, I often would have a camera. Uh, our job is to support the police department in the early stages of the investigation. So it often involves things like helping them develop what's necessary to secure search warrants, um, making sure that. Any statements that are taken from people in custody are taken with the appropriate uh, um, legal—in the appropriate legal way, and supporting the police department in in furthering the investigation. And then, of course, once someone is in custody, um, the detectives often talk to them, and then generally in New York, the, the district attorney will talk to them again, and then ultimately when someone is arrested and charged. The homicide prosecutor is responsible for handling that case going forward as it pends through the court system.
0: Yeah. For people who aren't New Yorkers, I don't think they appreciate how much safer New York City is today than it was even 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Because there was a time when people didn't even want to walk through Central Park. And now it's, you know, it. I feel comfortable walking pretty much every
1: in every area of the city at night. That's absolutely right. I remember as a kid being um, very restricted in, in where we were told to go, and that's changed drastically. I think that young people um, feel much more free to be all over the city.
0: Is that because of prosecutors, and is that because of... (laughs) I would love to take credit for it, and I think that prosecutors... Thank you for doing that. I know. (laughs) You're welcome.
1: Uh, This change really preceded my time in law enforcement in many ways. I think that prosecutors have been a critical part of the puzzle. I think communities have been really critical as well. Uh, I think that we are fortunate, and we're not perfect, but I do think that the police department, the uh, prosecutors, the community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, schools, and others in New York have, um, for the most part, worked together to uh, help increase public safety in New York. And there is some part of it that I think is, is largely unknown. I mean, we're we're very fortunate. And of course, this comes with, with costs to communities as well, that it is worth noting that, that the, um, standard of living has increased, but of course the cost of living has increased as well. And that comes at a cost to some New York families.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think you and I both have jobs that have one interesting thing in common. And that is that both of us have the types of jobs where an average day in our lives could be, one of the most meaningful days in someone else's life, particularly, you know, looking back at your role in the DA's office when, you know, trying and looking at one of these uh, crimes is a hugely significant moment for someone. So my question is, how do you keep your idealism when you're trying to, you know, do your laundry, get your kids to school see your friends, return your emails, and you're also in the middle of that trying to do something that is critically important and um, the the biggest thing in the world for somebody else.
1: Well, I took great inspiration from the victims and families of victims and cases that I handled. And I often think back to mothers who lost children to gun violence, for example, who I worked closely with, and think... If they can get up every day and get their other children off to school and go to their jobs and live their life, then surely I can do whatever it is I feel is so onerous right now. Um, And in my current position, running a think tank, which I love, there's a huge amount of work, much of which I am still figuring out how to do. And I do have this very unique perspective, which I think doctors have as well, which is sort of, well, if I don't get to this email, at least no one's dead, you know? And so it's, it's a, an interesting perspective to bring to bear in other lines of work once you have dealt with front lines trauma
0: yeah but I really like that about you because we met so spoiler alert we're friends offline Um, but we met when I was in medical school and you were in law school and one thing that I really have liked about watching your career grow and develop over time is that you've maintained the idealism and principles that I knew way back when and I think it's really difficult to keep your ideals high even as real life you know supervenes and gets in the way Mm -hmm. um Do you have any advice for people who might be listening about how to keep your idealism, um,
1: which I think is so important when you're trying to do important work? I believe so much in paying attention to your own mental health. And that means flagging when you see yourself losing your idealism or um, becoming... um, paranoid or or reflecting other symptoms of the fact that your work might be affecting you. So I would say that uh, making sure that you have a support network and that may include uh, friends and family, it may include mental health professionals. And I encourage all of those things to having a healthy life to balance out uh, difficult, challenging work. But uh, look, I, I think that service, community service is one of the great components of humanity and I feel like my life is so rich in large part because I feel like I'm serving and that's something that I care absolutely about passing on to other members of my immediate community about telegraphing to my children and and in the work that I'm doing now trying to help foster that both in law enforcement and prosecutors' offices and in communities so that folks can really understand the import of of service. I really like that.
0: So in your current role, you have a really interesting position because um, you're executive director of basically, and correct me if I'm not explaining it correctly, but a think tank that deals with issues that are more conceptual
1: about the concept of prosecuting people. Well, we have um, a kind of a couple of different tracks that we're working on, and it's unique as compared to other think tanks uh, in some ways. It is it's dedicated to a, a kind of a narrow area of the legal profession and a subset of law enforcement, but of course it implicates all of these big picture questions. So we do some work that is. Academic and philosophical about changing the uh, moving the needle on prosecution and the way that it affects big picture questions like mass incarceration, racial disparity in the criminal justice system, etc. But what we really try to do, as distinct from some other think tanks, is to create very user friendly content that practitioners, like in prosecutors' offices, can look to when they're trying to figure out how to implement change in their communities. And we also try to generate content that communities can use to make sure that they understand what their prosecutors are doing and that they can ask for the kind of services, support, and policies that will speak to those communities' needs. What are your main goals for your role? Well, now that I know where the the restroom and the printer are, I'm about two months <laughs> in, so um, I'm, I'm really <laughs> check. The, the, <laughs> those are like critically
0: important steps. So you know, figure out where to hang your coat, get well, your we email. We actually don't log have on. a coat rack. Yet. Oh, really? So okay, so I'll get back to you in another month. But exactly,
1: I believe that prosecutors are um, amongst the most important actors in the landscape of criminal justice reform and it's receiving increasing public attention, but virtually everyone who goes into jails and prisons in this country first comes through a prosecutor's office. So you can imagine how much it changes the landscape of our jails and prisons if prosecutors start to think differently or respond differently to the people who come through their doors. So part of what I want to do is really think about that and encourage local offices Throughout the country, to think about that. That said, there are 2,600 elected prosecutors in this country. So it is a a tall order to make change in any one of those offices, but certainly in, in all of them.
0: Sometimes when I think about the concept of prosecution, I wonder how a given DA's office decides which crimes to prosecute and which ones to let go. And, you know, I know that this may gesture toward larger issues of fairness, but how do you or how do we as a society figure out how to make it fair that certain crimes are prosecuted and certain ones
1: aren't? Well, it's a complicated question because, of course, we elect legislatures to pass laws, and then we elect district attorneys to enforce those laws. So there are some DAs who say, well, marijuana is a Crime, it's on the books and it's there because the legislature put it there. My job is to enforce that law then there are other district attorneys like Many of those in, in New York City who say it's on the books But it's not consistent with my my community's values to prosecute people. So I'm going to make the decision based on my discretion not to to prosecute those cases and that is a a very fraught question um, amongst district attorneys right now, but to my mind, the exercise of that discretion is totally appropriate and is one instance of a, an elected prosecutor's ability to respond to the demands and changing conscience of their community. So do you think law is local? Like, do you think justice on some level is
0: inherently local and inherently community-based, or do you think that there is something larger than
1: what a given community thinks that is right or wrong? Oh, I think it absolutely has to be local. I think that uh, there, what the counties upstate think about uh, some drug prosecution are very different from what the New York City thinks about drug prosecution. And uh, there, it, it, one has to kind of think about that through the lens of overall equity as well. So it's not a, a simple answer. But yes, I think that, that the application of laws should speak to what a community thinks they need, but within a given range, so that right. so that
0: fringe communities are not going way off base and doing stuff that's not equitable. Exactly right. Okay, so I think that's good. The other question I had about um, prosecution, just more philosophically, is how does a prosecutor decide what kind of punishment fits a crime? Like, if a let's say there's a murder that occurs and a prosecutor is trying the case, how do you know? whether it's appropriate to ask for, you know, 10 years in prison, 20, 50, life, death. Like what, what, what is the, what's a way that someone
1: not in the legal profession can make sense of that? Because it's hard to understand. Much of that is prescribed by statute. So there is a range for a particular category of crime that a prosecutor is uh, permitted to consider when making a request of a judge. And of course, a judge is the ultimate decision maker when it comes to uh, imposing a sentence on someone. I do think that one thing that's changing in the field is that prosecutors are increasingly trying to think about what their communities view as appropriate punishment. And I teach a class at Queensborough Correctional Facility here in New York that brings together incarcerated students and prosecutors to talk about criminal justice policy together. It's a really fruitful way of having a conversation over the course of a semester, and it generates really compelling policy ideas that are very proximate to the problem. So I see that kind of model, bringing decision makers and community members, especially people who are directly impacted by the system, together to talk about ideas as uh, potentially a transformative model for the system. In
0: terms of things like reducing the number of people who are incarcerated and reducing recidivism, do you have ideas about strategies that communities can undertake to help with that problem? Because it seems like the population that's imprisoned is growing and growing. And at least from the perspective of me, an outsider looking at the system without any real knowledge of criminal justice, it it seems almost
1: um, overwhelming. So I'm really curious what you think about that. Well, folks should know that the jail and prison population in this country is decreasing. And it has been decreasing steadily over the past decade or so. Um, And that is all to the good. There are many people who would argue that it should be decreasing faster. And I think that we will see that trend start to increase. Ways in which communities can try to assist uh, include participating. And it's timely that we're having this conversation now because all over the country there are district attorney races next week. And I hope that everyone listening takes advantage of that as an opportunity to weigh in. Um, Ask questions of folks who are running for district attorney, do some research on what their practices and policies will be, and then make sure that your voice is heard. That's really great.
0: Um, For people who are thinking about careers in law or justice do you have some general advice about early steps that
1: they can take there's so much content out there as we were saying earlier i encourage people to read and think deeply and broadly around issues not just of of criminal justice but social justice generally and um, in that Area in this moment in this country, issues of, of race are really paramount. So, I would suggest that anyone who is thinking about how to build a career serving in this way think about reading some of the outstanding materials that are available. Um, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy comes uh, top of mind and bring to bear the, uh, the humanity that that kind of content. Uh, triggers in pursuing your ultimate career was there
0: ever a time when you felt that this line of work was too intense for you you didn't
1: want to do it when my children were first born I had moments of struggle uh, in particular responding to homicides and dealing with family members and It felt so personal to me in a way that was beyond the way it had felt to me prior to having children myself that I sometimes wondered if it was the right fit and ultimately I took great um, strength from as I said the families and from the fact that it it felt to me like I was supporting uh, amongst the most vulnerable neighbors and community members
0: In looking at your two major roles in the DA's office um, as a prosecutor and now as the executive director of a think tank, it's interesting because one of those roles is very, um, you know, one case at a time. It's Mm -hmm. sort of everything is an n equals one situation, and now this other role is much broader, and you know, it's dozens or maybe more um, implications at a time. What, What do you what do you like better, and what? And, you know, how do you reconcile those two things?
1: Well, the good news is I don't have to choose, and I <laughs> you get like to do that it about all. it. <laughs> um, I think that for any lawmaker, the narrative personal component is what drives it. So last week, my organization hosted the second in a series of convenings uh, studying officer-involved fatalities, and we brought together prosecutors from around the country police chiefs, and family members who would lost loved ones to police violence. The conversation was part of a, an ongoing effort, including uh, nine months of phone conversations, an in-person convening, and the development of a what we're calling a toolkit that will distribute to communities and prosecutors' offices. And it was totally clear from that convening that everyone who was at that table, the prosecutors, the policy experts, the police chiefs, were there because they cared about the stories that these family members were telling about their lost loved ones. So I don't think that you can do the think tank work without being close to the people whose problems you are hoping to address. As a prosecutor
0: and now the executive director of a think tank, you sort of have a unique perspective on gun violence. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, especially in light of all of these
1: recent mass shootings? I think like many Americans, I feel exhausted by the issue. It's horrible, right? It's just, I know, it's hard to make sense of what it
0: all means. I remember personally feeling like after I heard about the Sandy Hook shootings, like, how could this ever happen again? Mm-hmm. And now week after week after week, there are more and more of these stories. And I, I have no idea how we got into this situation and how to get
1: out of it. It's a problem that speaks to the challenges of the size and, uh, and diversity of the country. And I can't say that I have a great prescription for it. I do know that there's real danger in the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, which would be, which is an act that would require that New York State recognize gun licenses from out of state. And of course, in a city like this, and many other large cities, we are so close to each other that you know, carrying a gun on New York City subway is very different from carrying a gun um, on your property in a more rural location. So. There certainly is legislation that that folks who care about this issue should pay close attention to and uh, advocate against. Uh, But beyond that, it is a problem that requires uh, kind of all hands on deck, unquestionably. How do you balance justice
0: with politics? Like, how do you keep those streams pure? Because it's very interesting that, you know, on some level, anyone involved in the field of justice has an opinion about something, but how do you separate your own opinion or your personal politics from what um, what's, what should be legally right for a society?
1: We're working on a paper on this right now through a three-year process we've undertaken with policy experts and, and district attorneys. and So expect a paper on prosecutors and politics forthcoming okay. that addresses <laughs> just that issue. Um, I think that it it can vary depending on um, issue, depending on who the practitioner is. But in many ways, prosecutors are distinct from other elected officials because their obligation well before politics is to um, maintain equity and assure public safety. And that really should be apolitical. And I think that for many, many prosecutors, they feel that it is.
0: One thing that I've always respected about you is that you really walk the walk and talk the talk. So people probably don't know about you that um, that you are very giving in terms of um, charitable contributions and just community service types of acts. Um, that you you know um, you live um, in um, Harlem, sort of right in. Um, you, particip- you participate in like the daily acts of New York City dwellers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how some of the little day-to-day things that are part of your life impact your role at, um, at John
1: Jay? Well, John Jay is an incredible treasure in this city. There are 15,000 students at John Jay, and they are from every walk of, of New York City life. Um, there are so many outstanding facts I could tell you about John Jay, but one of them is that they're number seven in the country as compared to schools with far greater assets in terms of sending uh, students of color onto law school. So I really believe that John Jay is building the bench of future lawyers, policy makers, uh, change makers, and hopefully prosecutors in, in this country. Um, in terms of my experience in my, my neighborhood, I mean, it, I live in the an incredibly friendly neighborhood on an awesome block, where I also happen to have handled a, a lot of cases in the area, and to my mind, knowing my neighbors and the folks who run the stores around me has been part of what makes me, to the extent that I am, an effective prosecutor, what it has enabled my ability to effectively investigate cases, to form relationships that are necessary to try to solve crimes. So. It uh, it's really core to the work of a prosecutor, and that's totally consistent with the tone that the John Jay community uh, really seeks to uh, institutionalize, and I think very effectively does.
0: That's amazing. Well, do you have any general pearls on how to how to dedicate yourself to your profession or? tips or tricks that you have that have helped you juggle the different aspects of your life and you know do you keep a notebook by your bed and write things down in the middle of the night or do you have 10 cups of coffee a day or like give us some life hacks on how to be successful like Lucy Lang
1: yes yes and yes <laughs> uh, good friends is so key I'm really fortunate that I have you and and other friends who I rely on so much to keep me grounded having having Support at work is tremendous and I'm so lucky now that I've come into um, an organization which is small but mighty and work with this really brilliant group of, of committed professionals and actually that's something we should talk about Millennials, I know you work with Millennials too I want to set the record straight and the, the Millennials who work with me are the most professional uh Thoughtful, smart people uh, I have worked with. No offense to the old people who I who I still love, <laughs> who I used to work with. But it's um, I think millennials get a bad
0: rap. So I think so too. Actually, I was talking with uh, my husband about this recently. That every generation slams the generation that comes after right. them, and it's sort of like one of these truisms of human history that you know that every gen, every next generation is like you know. Not as hardworking and not right. as good and not as whatever. But I think that I think that millennials overall are extremely um, progressive, tech savvy, educated, interested, yeah. super aware. I totally, I totally agree. agree with
1: you. Yeah. So one life hack is hire smart millennials. And then I am um, I try to be pretty strict with myself about bedtime. I really believe in getting a lot of sleep. I have a a bedtime alarm that goes off to remind me to go to bed. i also heard that bedtime alarm. You heard it go off and then I didn't go. So you heard me violate my own uh, life hack. I also try not to read nonfiction in bed because I read a lot of very um, disturbing nonfiction as part of my day job. So right before bed I try to read fiction. Um, Little things like that to just help make the separation between... um, Daytime and nighttime, I think, are really huge to waking up and feeling somewhat uh, revived. And then the four cups of coffee on top of that as (laughs) well. Okay.
0: You heard it here first. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been so interesting, and I could talk to you all day. I probably will another day. Um, But it's been so interesting to hear about a little bit of the backstory of justice and especially criminal law.
1: Well, thanks. thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, as always. Thanks. Oh, follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter, IIP underscore John J, if you want to know more about the world of criminal justice.
0: Yes, everyone, you heard it here. Uh, tell, tell
1: us the uh, Instagram again. It's IIP underscore John J. Okay. Thank you again.